From tinkering with his first 486 SX computer in his early teens to becoming a senior solutions architect at Ahead, Brantley Richburg is continuing to eat, sleep, and breathe computers. Like all fellow computer nerds, curiosity is his driving force. At an early age, Brantley was stringing pieces of yarn all across his childhood home. Strand by strand, Brantley's curiosity for connecting things slowly trickled into technology as he grew up. As a senior solutions architect, Brantley continues to find himself connecting Ahead's clients to the cloud. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Brantley delves into the current state of digital transformations into the cloud, the importance of edge computing, and how Brantley handles pushback. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce. Did you know that Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com employee experience. Hey everyone, this is Ian. You might have noticed that this episode is released on Tuesday instead of on Wednesday. That is because we are switching the scheduling of IT Visionaries to include a fun new segment called Trailblazer Tuesdays, where we interview a trailblazing IT leader just for a little bit at the end of the episode. You can hear it at the end, but first let's get into our interview. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have on the other line, hailing out of Raleigh, North Carolina. Brantley, what's going on? Hey, how you guys doing? It's good. You know, things are good. We're going to be talking about, this is, is a little bit of a deeper dive today on IT Visionaries. We're going to go deeper into um, your work as a solutions architect and, and what you're doing it ahead. So before we get into any of that, how did you get into technology in the first place? So I've kind of been a computer nerd since I was 13 years old. Um, my mom bought a, a 486 SX computer with uh, 25 gigahertz, or excuse me, megahertz CPU and four megs of RAM. So that dates me a little bit. So that, I started playing with computers when I was a teenager and just kind of dev- had a natural passion for them. And even in high school, I knew I wanted to go into networking for some reason. I'm not real sure why. I just, I've always been fascinated with connecting things. You know, a little funny tidbit, uh, only a few people in my family know I used to have a fantasy when I was a little child of like power lines and I'd like string furniture in the house together with like yarn pretending they were, I was stringing power lines together. So I think there's been some fascination with connecting all my life and networking is a natural way to do that with technology. And uh, so, and yeah, in, in high school, I knew I wanted to get into networking and I kind of started, you know, going down the path of, uh, let me go find a computer science program that I want to, I want to take and kind of the rest was history, but that's kind of how it started. It was just playing computer games and tinkering with PCs and things like that. And so tell me, you know, flash forward to today, what do you do as a senior solutions architect? So my role at Ahead is... I handle cloud connectivity, essentially. So as a senior solutions architect, my responsibilities are helping our clients at Ahead connect to the cloud uh, via private connectivity, public connectivity, but basically architecting uh, different solutions and ways to get in the cloud, which sounds easy, but it actually could be quite complicated depending on 
the enterprise network that we're trying to connect to and all the different routing elements that are there. And so I help clients facilitate that and figure out, you know, the best way to, for them to on-ramp into the cloud from a networking and pipe, from a pipe point of view, a networking pipe point of view. So what are the type of uh, customers that you work with? So we have a variety of customers, but a majority of them are in the financial services industry and healthcare industry. So we have a, a good bit of our client base are in those verticals. And then we also do have a few uh, state and local government, but most of it's financial services, larger, large financial services companies, insurance companies. Um, a lot, a lot, some of the ones you see on TV I've worked with before. Can't name names, obviously, but definitely seen some of their commercials. <laughs> yeah, people who have commercials. So I'm curious, what, um, you know, when somebody comes to you all, what is the scope of the work? What are they, what are the problems that they're having? So a lot of our customers are larger enterprise. So we don't typically do business with born in the cloud customers. Um, our legacy at Ahead is, is based on traditional data center infrastructure. And then many years ago, they, the company started to transition and build cloud practices and, and enterprise service management practices out. So a lot of our customers are, are in that boat where we have a, a, a large data center footprint and we're trying to figure out how to leverage the cloud in their business? How do they how do they use DevOps and agile methodologies in order to um, you know become more agile and to deploy services quicker? And, and a lot of that with enterprises though, there's it's not like we can just throw workloads in the cloud without much consideration. So we have to put uh, guardrails around it. There's there's process business processes that we have to adhere to because the larger enterprises you know they're a little slower to change because of some of the the regulations that they might be under or some of the policies that they IT policies that they've put in place over the years. And so those have to be changed. So a lot of it has to do with figuring out, you know, based on regulations and different criteria that they have to govern themselves by, how can they adopt the cloud in a way that's still productive and still helps enable the business do more faster, but also do it in a secure manner and in a manner in which they can still rein in the controls around the cloud, you know, kind of like putting it in a box in a way. And so when you're looking at, you know, when you're talking about kind of the, uh, the hybrid cloud folks or cloud native, like what, what are you seeing from like a digital transformation perspective? Like what are some of those legacy companies kind of struggling to, to adopt or some of the things like those pain points that you're seeing uh, on your end? You know, I think the biggest struggle that I've, encountered with customers or witnessed with customers since I've been doing this for a head for the last you know, year and a half or two, it's really people and process related. It's not as much technology related. Um, people are naturally resistant to change in my opinion. Yeah, totally. And, and, and cloud is obviously a huge change from what, you know, enterprises are typically dealing with. You know, we're, we have virtual machines running on hardware that's in our data center, probably two data centers, maybe more. Uh, we have a bunch of networking between them, <clears throat> replication, things like that. And all of a sudden now we have to give up an element of control to the public cloud service providers because we don't own the whole stack. And so some of the, you know, at the top level, they definitely see the value in, in, in outsourcing some of that or, or leveraging public clouds. But I think some of the struggle comes once you go lower in the ranks and you get down into the architect and the engineering level where they're skeptical of the cloud or they're resistant to change because of, you know, they don't want to learn something new or they're intimidated by it, probably more the intimidation factor maybe. And, or they just, 
quite frankly, just don't have the time. I've seen that actually be more of an issue than anything is some of the teams that get pulled into cloud projects for enterprises. It's, it's another thing that they've, ha- they've got to deal with while they're still maintaining and keeping the lights on in the data center. And they don't have a lot of focus. And without that focus, it's hard to learn new skills and be open-minded to say, oh, well, maybe I should think about doing this way because it is different to operate you know, computing in the cloud. And uh, that's kind of that's kind of the gist. I see it more as a as a people issue and a process issue than I do, you know, technology issue. Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, it makes sense. A lot of the CIOs that we talk to, what they're saying is like change management. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. um, how to organize their company around innovation and around kind of that mindset rather than. Uh, especially these really expensive implementations that take years and years and then you need to sunset uh, when somebody new comes in and they're like, hey, I don't want to do it this way or, or whatever. You talked about a common mistake in the past of adopting cloud as the thinking being like, you know, lift and, you know, just lift and shift it. I'm, I'm curious, like, why do you think that that's not necessarily the right way of looking at things? Well, there's a number of reasons why. Um and it kind of depends on your goal going to cloud. It, in some cases, it might not be a bad thing, maybe in the short term. Uh, and what I mean by that is that there's a customer that I that I worked with that needed to exit a data center because they were divesting uh, interest between two companies. They basically split off a huge part of the business and sold it off, and they they split into two companies. And because of that, they wanted to shut down the data centers they're running in, and they had a very very short runway. So on the flip side of it, that was a use case where lift and shift was appropriate because, you know, Azure is, is obviously a data center that we can leverage in that sense and we can migrate the workloads there. And so for the short term, it does great things for that. In the long term, though, it changes the financial model of how you pay for your IT assets. And a lot of people want to move to the cloud because of it's an operational expenditure and that's desired. But I could guarantee you that if you run a workload on-prem and you run it in the cloud or a whole set of those workloads are running on-prem and you just lift and shift them to the cloud without any kind of right-sizing or, or a consideration of how the cloud operates, it'll probably be more expensive to do so. It will be more expensive to do so. So that's kind of the, the bad thing about lifting and shifting is, you know, it's not cost-effective to move to the cloud if you're just going to continue as business as usual. So in a lot of those exercises, we'll say, We'll write, we'll do t-shirt sizing. If you know much about the traditional way of doing VMware or any, any virtualization hypervisor with an on-premise data center, you have clusters of hardware and the old school problem of VM sprawl that we used to have like you know, 10, 12 years ago when VMware started to become real popular, you know, you just start provisioning virtual machines because it was kind of like, there was no cost to it, right? There wasn't a, there wasn't a cost, a direct cost, I should say, to run that workload. And now when you move to the cloud, there is a direct cost. You do pay for everything that you use and consume. I mean, and when I say everything, I mean, everything you do in the cloud is probably you're char- being charged for. So you have to think about that in a different way. So I take the processes, the business processes that I do and the way I manage IT and I just lift and shift it to the cloud. It's not, you're not going to gain the advantages of cloud. So you have to look at it a little differently. And that's where, T-shirt sizing is like a, a first step. You know, hey, I've got this huge VM before I move it to, let's say, Azure or AWS. You know, let's, let's figure out the utilization of that machine. 
and let's let's turn it down a little bit because probably a lot of virtual machines or systems have been over provisioned, and that over provisioning is not a big deal when you don't have you know utility type bill that's associated to running it in your traditional infrastructure. So when you move to the cloud, you want to take those things in consideration. That's like first step uh, to make lift and shift a little more palatable. But at the end of the day, lift and shift, uh, if that's all you're going to do, you don't really, the other thing is you don't really gain any benefits to the cloud because a lot of the power of cloud is leveraging services that they provide. That's probably the biggest thing. And a lot of my customers that really want to go to the cloud to be innovative is they want to take or take advantage, I should say, of the services that they offer and not just run infrastructure as a service or virtual machines, right? Because there's, if you run virtual machines in the cloud, there's, there's little value add to that compared to what you're doing in the data center. I mean, there's, there are some value adds, but not as many as, well, I want to outsource maybe running my databases and run a PaaS platform. So I might want to run SQL as a service in Azure, for example. And so when you start to leverage other services that the cloud offers, that's when you start to really gain the true power of cloud and, and starting to take some of the mundane tasks away from IT workers, you know, maintaining operating systems for database servers and things like that, as an example. And we can just leverage the cloud and let them manage it. And then the, your, your architects and your engineers can focus on more innovative tasks within the business that helps maybe drive more revenue or, or what have you. So that's kind of the, a very long answer <laughs> to your question. No, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, that's awesome. I mean, I, and I think, you know, you talked about the complexities of of the process, and I'm curious, you know, as CIOs and technology leaders are looking at these type of organizational changes, what are the folks at the engineer level going to push back with? with like why they wouldn't want to do something yeah, okay. and like that's a valid concern versus like not a valid concern. The first, so I have a, a customer example, this, this one customer that I worked with, you know, the CIO, he was new to the organization and he had a huge initiative of getting this organization into the cloud. Right. And I kind of air quote into the cloud, right. Going to the cloud. Uh, but all of their applications that they were running were all commercial off the shelf applications. So they were all applications that were purchased by other companies, no in-house development, um, no, nothing like that. And so you know, the cloud that they, that we, I, I guess that we recommended to them uh, on this engagement, this was a few years ago, was to move to AWS. So we set up a foundation AWS environment. Um, we taught them how to run, uh, how to deploy, I should say, workloads with CloudFormation templates and, and all the stuff we built out, network security elements, actually helped them with a lot of the networking in this project. The problem is actually unique with this particular customer is a lot of their workloads were, like I said, off the shelf. So most of the vendors that they were working with didn't provide a cloud native solution, so to speak. And when I say cloud native, I mean, you know, applications that are meant to run in a stateless manner, you know, distributed. Like you're like you're supposed to use in the cloud, right? Because the cloud was originally developed for applications to be stateless, and you know the workload could be spun up and spun down. When you have a an application installed into a single virtual machine, running that in the cloud, that's you know hundreds of miles away from your from your location versus the data center that's local. Uh, so to the architects and some of the engineers that, that were working there, they they just they, they didn't understand 
why we would, they would, excuse me, move all these workloads to the cloud, especially because there was some inclement weather elements that could affect them that uh, could end up severing their connectivity to the cloud. So they were very concerned by that, but you know, the direction of the business was to, you know, move to the cloud. Uh, and I don't think today they've moved a lot of applications to the cloud, but they still have an environment out there. So to answer your question, <laughs> you know, I think that it comes down to sometimes the message that an organization wants to move to the cloud isn't, doesn't necessarily trickle down to all of the, the people that are going to be involved in it and the reasoning why that we, that the organization would want to do it. And I think that I'm a person individual as an individual, right? Uh, I've always been kind of a pain in the butt in the sense of if someone tells me to do something, my first question sometimes is why. Um, I like to understand why. I think there's a natural element of as a human, you want to understand why you you, you should or should do something. I think that if, if you're encountering like more resistance from, people within the organization, perhaps it's maybe the, the, the mission, you know, no pun intended there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, I appreciate the shout out. Yeah. The mission needs to be, you know, clearly explained to everyone that's involved in it or could potentially be involved in it. I had another customer very, very recently engaged, recent engagement, probably a couple of weeks ago where people of the networking team came into the room and they were completely clueless uh, no offense to them, but they were completely clueless to why they were moving to the cloud. But yet they were asked to come into these workshops and these meetings and talk about connecting to, you know, public cloud infrastructure. Wait, really? That's fascinating. Hold on. So who were the, what were the type of profiles of those people? The network engineers, the engineers that were managing the environment. Yeah. So you're, oh, wow. so your your network managers, your mid-level contributors, you know, things like that. But uh, yeah, it was interesting because that, and that's kind of where my, my point came from. It was a, it was an epiphany that I had like, wow, that it really, really makes a lot of sense for everyone involved to understand because we had to stop and spend time explaining the, the mission, <laughs> no pun intended again, um, but the goal of the, or, you know, what they were trying to do. So it, the more times that you have to stop and explain and get somebody on board to, to take their guard down, I think it, it burns cycles in time that if you, if you clearly state the goals of why you're doing this, uh, I think it greases the skids a little bit. And, and I think it's important for as many people as possible to be on board. Obviously you're not going to convince everybody that it's a good idea and you're always going to have, in my opinion, probably some people who disagree. And that's probably a good thing. You need to have people to challenge you. Um, you need to have people to make sure that, you know, if I were in a position of, you know, influence, in an organization like that, I would want to make sure that people do challenge me so that I understand that I am making the right decisions. Um, and I'm considering all the different elements that need to go into that. But yeah, it was pretty interesting to see that they were like just walking into another meeting and, Oh, we're going to the cloud. Uh, okay. Why are we doing that? Yeah. I, I think that shouldn't happen. I think that, that, that goal and the, and the reasonings behind that need to be stated you know, very clearly to, to those involved. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and that's such a fascinating, fascinating use case. That's why I'm glad we had you on, man. This is great. Yeah. Uh, get, getting those, uh, getting those deeper insights because I think, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, the senior leaders that we have on the show, you know, don't necessarily hear the feedback from those folks in the way that, 
uh, they wish they did. So that that's great feedback. Yeah, because you you got to put politics into it as well. People are some people are scared to speak up, you know, because they're afraid they're going to lose their job or be reprimanded, and that's a shame because I think raw feedback. I mean, and I think this this isn't a technology thing. This is just a human thing. I think raw constructive criticism, you know, regardless of where you're in the, where you're at in the organization, is is healthy. And but that that's a two way street, right? So you have to offer constructive criticism, not just criticism or negative criticism. And you also have to be able to accept that. Yeah. I think if, if more IT leaders could do that, um, then I think enterprises particularly wouldn't waste so much time trying to do new initiatives, but it just becomes so political. I mean, I've got some customers that they're more, some are more political than others, but some of the ones that are highly political um, and have a lot of policies in place and just, things of that nature, it is very difficult to get anything done. Um, even as a consultant, you know, I had a customer where, you know, just to get onboarded into their systems took me 30 hours. What systems? <laughs> All the various systems in their environment that I needed to get access to, to do work on. Um, so just getting access to, you know, a virtual desktop, getting access to Active Directory and VPN connectivity to get to that desktop, and yeah. and it's a highly regulated uh, environment. So you know some of yeah, it is just part sense. of the industry that they're in, but um, in other cases, it you know it's, that's just the nature of their business. Um, but at the other token, there's also a lot of politics involved. You know, people won't control right. So security teams don't trust um, these these new cloud teams that are being built and they don't trust cloud. So that it's really, it's really a people problem. It's just technology is technology. Um, and the cloud works. It's, it's really, it's really a people issue when it comes to adopting it for these larger enterprises. They just, they either are scared of it, don't trust it, or they just have, they're afraid they're going to lose their job, you know, because, Oh, I'm going to be, I'm no, I'm no longer going to have a place because, you know, cloud's going to take my job, which is absolutely not true. Cloud's not going to take your job. People were scared about virtualization and thought it was going to take their job. And look, it ended up creating more jobs. I think it's going to create more jobs. I think it's just, you have to be, as an individual, you have to be willing to learn new skills and be a little flexible. Um, <clears throat> you know, if you would just want to do the same job for forever and ever and ever, IT is probably not the field for you, um, to be honest with you. And you need to be willing to adapt to those changes. Now, how fast you adapt is going to be a, a personal thing that you choose to do or, or are capable of doing. But I just think that you have to be able to ebb and flow with the different trends that happen in IT, right? Um, but you don't want to be too quick to, to change or too quick to the jump on new technologies because there are things that are become hot and popular, but fade out. So it's kind of a good a balancing act, I think. Speaking of trends, uh, something that's not going away anytime soon is uh, the edge. You know, we had Cole Crawford, the CEO uh, of Vapor, in here uh, talking about the edge. Uh, we have Edge Week. Um, we're clearly bullish on how important the edge is going to be for the future. I'm curious, what is uh, what are your thoughts on? Uh, and I know it's nebulous uh, <laughs> on uh, on you know, for lack of a better term, the state of the edge? I guess it depends on what edge you're talking about. Um, naturally, the edge to me is 
as a networking guy is where I'm egressing and ingressing into an environment. So I guess the edge is the, the perimeter of your, of your environment and, uh, or how close you are to the user that you're providing services for. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. The edge is, it's a very interesting term, but from a networking point of view, you know, I look at it from a cloud standpoint, the edge of clouds are, are in certain places. They're not, they're not always close to where you're going to, where your users are going to be. Uh, for example, most all the clouds are in the Ashburn, Virginia area. A bunch of them are in the Chicago area. Some are in South Texas. Uh, and then obviously on the West coast, as far as U S the U S footprint is concerned. When you relate that to your traditional data center, well, those data centers are typically pretty close to the user. So when you start thinking about moving more workloads to the cloud and lever and more companies leveraging to the cloud, you're, you're actually starting to polarize where the processing power is. Um, I guess if you look at it from that point and a lot of it's going to be either in the, on the East coast and the, in the Midwest or on the West coast versus kind of being distributed. Um, as applications and different things change, you know, you're going to have to push that computing power a little closer to the user in different forms. And, and how that's going to happen, I, I, you know, I can't read. I don't know if I can read minds or predict the future, but I do see that it's going to probably shift because it kind of, if you think about historically speaking, right, computing used to be centralized. You know, mainframes, for example, were, you know, very, very highly centralized. And then we went to a distributed model where we started going into uh, client server uh, type topologies, right? The, the kind of systems that we're used to today but those were distributed across your enterprise, your, your equipment. And we're still kind of doing that, but now a lot of the servers are starting to centralize again in the cloud uh, in the sense of instead of running it on our own equipment, we're now running it on someone else's equipment. Putting that, so the, even though it's still distributed, logically it's kind of physically starting to you know centralize again. And so I think as we develop applications that, need high, you know, lower latency times or, you know, faster response times. I think you're going to have to leverage computing power closer to the user. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think, uh, now I think it's pretty clear, you know, like 5G is going to change a lot of stuff yeah. and, uh, we know, what we want to do with compute power is going to change. So the farther away that people are from where the different cloud hubs are, it, you know, it's just common sense that those things are going to become distributed in some way, whether that's, you know, solutions like vapor or otherwise. Yeah. I mean, and in native cloud solutions, you know, they're, they're starting to put some computing power in their edge locations. You know, so networking wise, the cloud providers have a, a much more distributed edge, edge locations than they do regions where they run computing power. Right. And so as that 5G trend becomes more popular and we need computing closer to the user, I can completely see cloud providers building out more computing resources in these edge locations to get that, those types of resources closer to the user than, than you can get in their main regions. And if I had a little magic ball in my little mind, you, know, uh, you may see that some of the application architectures will start to change and morph towards that model where maybe some of the processing's done in those edge locations and then you know some of the, the data's fed back into the larger regions that you're running in like USD one for AWS as an example or USD two in Azure, you know, where where a lot of the computing power still still is in within the public cloud as an example. So yeah, I could totally 
I could see something like that happening. All right, let's get into the lightning round. These questions are fast and easy, just like the Salesforce platform. You can build mobile apps faster and easier than ever before with Salesforce platform. We love platform. Check them out. Just go to salesforce.com to learn more about platform. Fast and easy questions. Brantley, are you ready? Yes or no. These are yes or no answers, right? It's just fast and easy. It's your <laughs> definition of fast and or easy. Uh, number one, what app are you using on your phone that's the most fun? The one that, the thing that comes to mind is Headspace. I just started literally like five days ago. It's pretty great. Yeah, I just started trying to meditate five days ago. And so the, the latest app that I've been using is that. And I've been really impressed with it so far. Um, I'm on a five-day streak right now with meditation. So uh, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. So, but yeah, I, I don't know, Headspace. And then there's this app for uh, the CrossFit gym that I go to called Wattify. Um, it sounds kind of funny, but that's where I can view everybody's score um, within the gym. So if I go work out in the morning, I can, I can see what people are doing throughout the day. So I get a lot of fun out of that and pleasure out of that. And it's like, oh man, you know, Albert beat me. No, nah, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, shout out to Albert, our VP Ops here at Mission, who uh, who you and I compete on a, or excuse me, you and him compete. I do not compete in uh, any any type of CrossFit activities. <laughs> Should start. It's fun. You can uh, you can ask any CrossFitter; they love to talk about CrossFit. That's what. Uh, yeah, yeah. How do you know that? How do you know you're talking to a CrossFitter? Uh, they already told you. They already told you. Yeah, it's <laughs> a good one. Um. What is your favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? So I'll be honest with you. I haven't listened to a lot of podcasts, but recently, except for like some tech ones from my different cloud providers, but my favorite one right now has been Chasing Excellence by Ben Burgeon. So, hmm. so the shocker, it's CrossFit podcast, but it's really kind of more than that. It talks about um, chasing excellence and you're always chasing perfection with the understanding that you're never going to achieve perfection, but in the progress, you might achieve excellence. And a lot of that is, is mental, uh, mental tricks and mental attitude and how you frame things and how you look at things. And, and a lot of it is circled around, you know, the competitive CrossFit space, but it bleeds into life in general and how you, you look at things at work, how you look at things with your spouse, how you look at things with your children. So I've really enjoyed that because it's helped me take a step back and maybe think about why I'm uh, thinking or reacting to things a certain way, a negative way. And maybe I need to change my attitude towards things that I might not like or things that are just you know, not pleasurable or something like that. So sorry, that wasn't a quick answer, but you know, that's why I like the podcast. It's pretty good. Oh, it's all good. And book, the Chasing Excellence by Ben Barjohns. He has a book as well. Uh, I listened to the audio version of that and then found this podcast. So yeah, they're kind of tied together. What's your favorite thing to cook or eat? <laughs> My wife is listening to this. Her ears are going to perk up on the cook part because <laughs> uh, she does most of the cooking in the house. Uh, but my favorite thing to eat is queso. I could swim in queso. I love queso. I Me too. Uh, <laughs> it's the best. It's not good for you, but uh, it's probably why I do CrossFit. So I burn off calories so I can eat as much queso as I can. Um, but yeah, I, I love queso. And cooking, anything easy is pretty much my go-to. Um, you know, leftovers, 
<laughs> Heating up leftovers is, is where I go. True or false? Mm. For Halloween this year, you're going to be a fish astronaut. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm definitely considering it. My son loves the show Fish Astronaut on Netflix, like loves it. So yeah, I might have to figure out how I can, you know, dress up like a fish that's in an astronaut suit. That'll be an interesting challenge. But uh, I will confirm nor deny that that's going to happen. How about that? Well, we believe in you. That is for sure. Um, final question. What, uh, what are you most excited about? What technology are you most excited about uh, for the future? That's a good question. I think I'm, I'm definitely excited about the continuation of infrastructure as code platforms you know, like building out multiple pieces of infrastructure that's distributed across different platforms. And that's a very long winded way of saying using tools that aren't necessarily tied to a certain provider, like, like CloudFormation is infrastructure as code that's tied to AWS constructs. Uh, Azure Resource Manager or ARM, uh, those templates are tied to Azure. Things like Terraform, HashiCorp Terraform, uh, I think are really cool. Uh, I'm excited about learning more about what those are going to end up doing for customers. We're starting to see customers move in that direction more, but yeah, from a professional standpoint, I think like things like Terraform are awesome because I can build infrastructure as code for let's say AWS or Azure and also tie that into, you know, a firewall appliance that I'm running in those platforms. That isn't a native native service that they're providing, but something I'm bolting on for a customer and to have a common tool that can manage that and deploy those things and deploy those constructs, I think is phenomenal. Well, thanks for coming on, man. This has been awesome. Uh, appreciate, uh, appreciate you keeping Albert in line over there in, uh, in North Carolina as well. Um, Absolutely. Any final thoughts, anything to plug? Yeah, I would just say, you know, to, to those out there listening, um, don't be afraid to be, to get uncomfortable. I think that's my single biggest career advice. If you want to adopt new skills and new technologies, you, getting comfortable is the anti-pattern to innovation and, uh, and making yourself grow. It's like I've always told people grow or die is kind of a motto of mine. Um, and I really believe that. It's not just me saying that. Like if I'm not learning something new and that doesn't have to be technology that, you know, like I mentioned before, I'm trying to pick up meditation. Like I always want to learn new things and new ways of looking at stuff and, and how I interpret the world. Because if I don't feel like I'm growing in, in as a person, as a father, you know, as a CrossFitter, as a technologist, as a husband, all the different hats that I wear in my life. then and I don't know, why I'm here. So I, uh, I say, get on, get comfortable being uncomfortable, learn new things and look at things in a different light. And, uh, you might just surprise yourself at, you know, how you, how you may change and how you may adapt and what you may learn. So that's kind of my parting words. I love it. Thanks so much for, for hanging out and, uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you again for listening. And now here is Dragana Boris from the Salesforce platform team with our Trailblazer Tuesday segment. Thanks, Ian. Dragana checking in for our weekly installment of Visionary Implementations by Amazing Trailblazers. For this edition of Trailblazer Tuesday, we have Marshall King from JLL. 
Hey, how's it going? Marshall, it's really great to have you on, and I'm super pumped to hear about all of the amazing things you're working on. Can you give a little background on your role and what you're working on at JLL? Sure. Uh, my name is Marshall King, and I am the Senior Vice President of IT Solutions. But the real description of my role is that I own the Salesforce platform for the JLL Digital Solutions team. JLL is a Fortune 200 company focused on maximizing and optimizing your real estate portfolio investment. The Digital Solutions team is a team of IT innovators themselves who are focused on implementing cutting-edge technology solutions for our customers. Amazing. Might need to hit you up on that real estate portfolio later, but I'm just on my first house still. <laughs> Same here. Marshall, there's some really great stuff that you just talked about that you guys do. But as far as you and your role, there's one thing that's really stuck out to me, and it happened to be on Twitter, where you said that Salesforce Flow is your spirit animal. Can you let us in on the secret here and share some things you actually are doing with Flow at JLL that make you so excited to say this? Sure, I'd love to. I mean, we flow all the time and really love it. We found it to be incredibly valuable with eliminating routine, repetitive tasks, optimizing our processes so we can have really good data quality, really just streamlining our processes and eliminating anything that's really redundant and unnecessary for a, a user to do. So we've done a number of different flows uh, over the years. We've got some flows that we use to generate revenue forecasts that are really valuable to the business. We're multi-currency and multi-company, and so we have flows that help us easily add products when we add a new currency, or vice versa, when we add new products, we have to distribute those to all the currencies, and so we have flows that do that automatically with just one click. And another one that's really important for us is user setup and provisioning. Uh, we have a fairly complex org because we have financial force. And so we have a lot of, we have a, an employee record, a user record, and a contact record for every employee. And there's a lot of permissions and security involved. And so we've automated that process with a flow form. So we fill out a few fields on a form and it does all of that creation for us. So we found flow to be just an essential part of optimizing our investment in Salesforce and really saving us lots of time. How are you tracking this? Like, is there a way that you guys are making sure or able to track these hours saved? Yeah, actually. So we've developed a really simple subflow that we call with every one of our flows. So anytime somebody performs one of these actions in a flow, we just actually create a record and we indicate what flow was called, who called it and when, and how much time we estimate they saved. So every time somebody uses one of these processes, we create that record and we have a dashboard and we have reports where we can see how much time we've saved. We estimate this year alone, we've saved about a thousand hours through our automations. That's really great to hear. I'd love to hear about some specifics. I know you talked about whether it's user provisioning or project setup times or new currencies. What has been the improvement there from like the cut down of time that you've seen? Well, as an example, we set up projects for our consultants to log time against and for our invoicing. And we took the time uh, required to create a project from about 15 minutes to about four minutes. Something along the lines of setting up products for a new currency used to take about an hour and it was really tedious having to have an Excel file and export the products and do some data manipulation and import them. So it was error prone and it was time consuming. And we literally reduced that down to a second. You have a form on the homepage, you pick your currency, click a button and it does all the work. Wow, that's amazing. So essentially, you guys have digitized these processes and removed all the redundancy and just improved productivity and the overall employee experience. 
what's next year? Any exciting flows we should be on the lookout for that you guys are creating or other implementations we should have our eyes out on? Well, so if we want to continue the theme of employee setup, the employee flow that I mentioned is on the admin side for us setting up a new employee, but we still need to get a lot of information from a, a hiring manager when they want to onboard a new person. And so we're actually building a flow that they will go through and fill in and give us a lot of the critical details that we need to set up a user. So it's going to be a multi-tabbed flow, pulling in data that may already be in the system, but then having blank fields that we need them to fill in to complete the process. And then that will feed right into the admin side where we can take the data they've populated through their flow and then we can generate user setup provisioning flow with the data that they've provided. So that's one area they're working on right now. Wow, you guys are like a flow best practice use case here. And Marshall, I just want to thank you so much for bestowing all of us with this wisdom of yours and uh, teaching us just how to do flows right. I'd love to hear a tip whether it is on career advice or on implementation best practices that you'd like to share with our audience? Um, I actually have a tip that I think applies to both, and it's a fairly simple one, but it's really to ask lots of questions and to ask why. We used to have a rule that, we still have the rule, but we used to focus on it more. We called it the rule of three, that if you ask somebody a question and they answer it, you're probably not getting the complete answer, not because they're being dishonest, but because they may be summarizing it down or they may not be thinking it through all the way. So we, we used to get in the habit of trying to re-ask the question at least three times. And we found that by asking something three times, you can really get to the heart of the matter. Asking lots of questions is going to give you the right knowledge to then be able to either grow your career or make sure you implement something correctly and that it's going to meet all the user's needs. Amazing. Rule of three. If you're not doing it, you should be doing it now. Thanks for joining us, Marshall. Hope to have you back in the future. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you again to all of our IT Visionaries listeners. If you ever have a question for us or want to reach out, you can just email info at mission.org. That's info at mission.org. And we can answer your questions. We can reach out to past guests. We can, you know, book future guests, all that fun stuff. Thank you so much for listening and let us know how we can help you out. Take care. Thanks again to our friends at Salesforce. Did you know Salesforce isn't just for sales? Using Salesforce as an employee experience platform helps make every employee across your organization more productive thanks to a common mobile-first platform for getting work done faster. Find out more at salesforce.com slash employee experience.